0: You're listening to an audio message from The Well. A gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Word in the Lord in prayer. Father, Father, thank you for your word. Uh, God, I'm just standing here this morning expecting that you are going to speak to us. And that whether we knew it or not when we walked in this morning, what we needed the most was for you to speak to us because man cannot live on bread alone, but only upon every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so whether we knew it or not, when we came in here today, what we needed the most was to hear from you, and that's the collision course we're on, is getting ready to hear from you. So, Father, help me to speak in my weakness. Help me to speak and to proclaim your word as though you are here speaking to us because you are. Help us to grow in knowledge. Help us to grow in faith. And help us to grow in maturity. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we've uh, studied uh, Ephesians 4, 7 through 16, over the last few weeks, right? Week 4, hoping to get it done in 5. So hopefully next week we'll we'll wrap this section up. Um, I've been reminded, as we've studied this section, um, of a few biblical themes regarding the purpose of the church, right? So the church was not designed to be a country club. Wasn't designed to be a social club, wasn't designed to be a political power either. Uh, we have a hard time in America getting confused on the purpose of the church. And I can, I can tell you with uh, emphatic passion that the church was not designed to be any of those. Wasn't meant to be another activity on our, our list of good things to do either. That's another issue I think we have in America. Um, we just make our list of good things and church goes on that. Also not meant to be a place where um, spiritual goods are just merely consumed either. Here's the way Paul says it. Let's read the whole text, verses 7 through 16. Paul says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning. Boing. Small room, you can hear the water in my, uh, in my bottle, boing. As it echoes and reverberates off the walls. Now, so the church, uh, the church was designed by God to be his living uh, representation of Jesus on this earth, right? I think we could agree with that statement. Um, uh, the church is designed to be um, like a maternity ward, you could say. Uh, like a pediatric clinic. Like any, uh, uh, an emergency room. Church is meant to give birth to spiritual babies. It's meant to help spiritual infants grow into spiritual adults. It's meant to provide care for wounded people, lost people. Church is not a building. Church is a people. The church is a people who simultaneously consume and contribute to the spiritual needs of the church family and the community it occupies. Martin Um, Lloyd-Jones, y'all have given me all sorts of guff after getting his commentary. One of my favorite preachers right now. Um, Commenting on this verse says this. It says, The business of the church is not just to tell us that we can be happy and how we can find a friend or how to overcome sin. We are too subjective. We are too self-centered. The way to grow is is to look at him, to have faith in him, to have this knowledge of him. Pause. Quote for a second. What Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying is that our main goal is to turn one another to Jesus. That's our goal. He continues by saying this. The revelation of Jesus is in God's written word. And the Spirit has been given to help us to understand it. Therefore... I must give myself with all diligence to its study. And it is the business of pastors and teachers, church members, to inform each other concerning these things and to build them up. But we do not stop at that for this study of God's word is meant to bring us to the full knowledge of the Son of God. That I might know him, namely this intimate, personal, a subjective, experiential knowing of him, rejoicing in him, and receiving of him as our life and drawing from his fullness and being filled with his fullness. End quote. Our main goal. As a church, according to Jones, and I, th- and I believe according to what God says in his word, is simply to know Christ and to make him known. I think it's as simple as that. I think, I think it's so simple that a young child can get it. But I think it's so simple that as adults we often overlook it. So the church isn't a country club. It's not a social club, it's not a political power, not a place for consumers to feed without contributing. The church is the visible body where the spirit of Christ lives on earth. The church is meant to be full of people who are full of Jesus. That's what the church is meant to be. Full of people who are full of Jesus. Meant to be full of people who are becoming Christians, growing in Christian maturity, and helping to rescue the lost so that they too can hear and believe and grow and proclaim the gospel of Jesus at the cross and the empty tomb. So our goal, our goal is to grow more and more and more and more, mature. In our relationship with Jesus, and then we're called to help others to know him in the same personal experiential way. So our, our, I say it this way, you guys have heard this probably, are calling us twofold. It's first vertical up in our relationship to Jesus, in knowing him. It's second horizontal in the way that we share Christ with others. Interestingly, if you follow this pattern of vertical and horizontal, you might find yourself across in the middle of all that. Snarky. <laughs> <laughs> but the question is, that you have that visual. question is, how do you do this? Like, that's the million-dollar question, right? Everybody asks, how do you do that? I assure you there are simple answers, and then I assure you I will make it as complex as I can as I explain it to you today. So we'll leave it up to the Holy Spirit to... Uh, Disseminate all of that. What are the goal lines of spiritual growth then? Uh, Might be a way to ask that. Um, In verses 7 through 12, these are the verses we studied for the last three weeks. Um, Verses 7 through 12, Paul says that God gives each of us gifts, right? And then he removes our enemies so that we can utilize the gifts that he's given us. And I've caveated every week that the only reason that somebody doesn't use the gifts that God has given you is simply because you are living under the power of Satan's sin in the grave. And you don't need to. Because they've been beaten, right? So, so so, Jesus has beaten those enemies so that we can utilize those gifts to bring him glory. He, he gives each of us as gifted individuals to each other as gifts. I mean, the word gift and given is all over in this text. He gives us gifts and then gives us as gifted individuals to each other so that we can build each other up, equip each other. Last week, as we looked at the meaning of what it means to equip and build. Um, We paid special attention, if you'll remember, to the centrality of the word of God in this work of ministry. We must remember that the ministry that doesn't have the biblical gospel at its center is not a ministry that equips and builds up the body of Christ at all. This kind of ministry, if it could even be called a ministry at all, is a social club at best. Jesus did not die on a cross to create another social club for us to have fun with our friends. Amen. Okay. Thank you. And then this week, we look at verse 13. As we look at verse 13, as we hone in there, we see the goal of what Paul has been explaining to us all along. It's been so hard, I'll tell you. I, I can imagine Paul writing these words and saying, I want to lay a foundation, I want to lay a foundation, and I want to lay a foundation before I unpack this. Um, the importance of where Paul starts to head in the rest of these verses is so important. It would be easier to jump there over the last few weeks, but it's important that we lay that foundation of what Paul is saying, right? As we get here this week, I think that what he has been explaining to us all along is vitally important. Because a ministry that biblically equips and biblically builds up the body of Christ actually helps people grow As Paul says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we have three things to consider today from this text. Three things. Attaining the unity of the faith, attaining the knowledge of the Son of God, and attaining mature manhood. But before we head there, I think we have one other thing that we need to consider. Before we look at what it means to attain faith, attain knowledge, and attain maturity, I think we should start by looking at the phrase, until we all attain. Think about this phrase that he begins with, until we all attain. Like I want us to specifically think about the meaning of the word attain even. Hone in on the word attain. What does Paul mean? What do you think Paul means when, when he uses that word, when, when he says that the work of ministry is meant to equip Meant to build up the body until we all attain faith, knowledge, and maturity. It'd be easier to talk about faith, knowledge, and maturity, and we're going to get there. It's important. What does this "until we all attain" mean? Like, does that word "attain" does it mean to, to arrive at something in the sense of completion? Does it mean that? Or is Paul just throwing his words around? So I don't, I, don't think, I don't think Paul throws his words around. He's a wordy man. I think he liked his words. I don't think he just threw words around. Um, secondly, I don't think God throws his words around either. I believe that God's word is divinely inspired, and so I think there's a reason that this word is there. Um, what does the word attain mean in this context, especially in the, the biblical context, the theological context, as you think about it? I, I think the best way to explain this word, is to think about the already not yet nature of our faith, our knowledge, and our maturity. Theologically or biblically speaking, it's true, it's true that Christ's work at the cross accomplished perfection for us. In other words, Jesus completed the work of purchasing us out of our sin at the cross and we were in that moment when he did that work at the cross in that moment we were made perfect in front of our heavenly father this is known as the doctrine of justification that's the doctrine we were completely perfectly justified made right with our Father in heaven, in that moment when Jesus said three words, it is finished. This is the already complete part. But in terms of our sanctification, our holiness, our complete ted notice the difference that one letter makes. Complete, completed. In terms of our sanctification, completed perfection, we are not yet completed in this moment. Perfection is a process. It's a process with a goal of completion that will be attained once we step into the arms of our Father in heaven. We are not yet in the arms of Christ in heaven, therefore we are not yet completed. So already, not yet means already complete, not yet completed. Follow? Our faith, our knowledge, our maturity, it's complete in front of our Father in Heaven in Christ, but it is not yet completed because we're not yet there. Therefore, every one of us in this room we are on a journey of attaining attaining perfect faith, perfect knowledge, perfect maturity. And this is why the church exists today. This is why we exist. It's to build each other up. It's to equip each other for that. The church, the church exists to equip and build up the body of Christ with its many members until we completely attain or arrive at perfect faith, perfect knowledge, and perfect maturity. And we will not arrive at that perfection till we arrive in heaven. So for now, we are attaining. We are attaining or, or pursuing perfection <coughs> in our faith, perfection in our knowledge, and perfection in our maturity. So let's, let's take those one at a time now. Number one, we are attaining to the unity of the faith. <coughs> Now, Faith, um, other than being the name of one of my daughters, because you have to drop that line when you have a daughter named Faith. <laughs> She's Faith, uh, other than looking like a Smurf. Anyways, <laughs> Faith is about, I'm jealous, I'm jealous. She has hair, I don't have hair. I do have hair on my face. Anyways, back to the matter at hand. Faith is about conviction, Okay. Faith is about conviction. I don't know about you, um, but while I know that I am complete in front of my Father in heaven because of Christ's work at the cross, here's the thing. I know that I am not yet completely or perfectly convicted or convinced in my faith. Anybody else there too? I know I'm not yet perfectly convicted or convinced in my faith. I'd like to put a good mask on. And try to make you think I'm perfectly convicted or convinced. I'd like you to especially think that because I stand in this pulpit that somehow I've got it all together. I am not perfectly convinced or convicted. If I were completed in the sense of convinced perfectly, convicted perfectly in my faith, then I wouldn't chase after sin. If I were completed in my faith, I would not listen to the accusations and the lies of Satan. If I were completed in my faith, I would not follow the passions of this world. When I listen to Satan, when I listen to sin, when I listen to the world that we live in, what's happening is I'm struggling in my faith because in those moments I'm struggling to believe and to trust that Jesus will satisfy the desires and the longings and the woundings in my heart. That's why what Patrick prayed today uh, during worship wrecked me. Because that was the prayer. There's nothing else that will satisfy you or me. And yet that's what we struggle with. You go back and you read the Old Testament stories, right, of the heroes, David, Moses, Abraham, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, man, we all want to be like them, but the reality is that every one of us in this room is not like them. We're more like the Israelites who can't get it straight, who, who Moses looked at at one point and was like, you know what, guys, I've been walking with you guys for like 40 some odd years, and you have been a rebellious people ever since I met you. That's exactly what he says. I'm like, whoa, Moses. You and I are more like the rebellious Israelites. Struggle in our faith. Build a golden calf one day. Next day look to Jesus. Build another calf the next day. Next day look to Jesus. More like them. It's a battle for me. Trusting to believe that Christ will satisfy my every desire right now. When things are out of control, I struggle to believe and to trust that Jesus is in perfect control. When I feel alone, I struggle to believe and trust that Jesus will never leave me or forsake me. So I struggle with being convicted in my faith. But the Bible reminds me, Hebrews 11, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. I'm also reminded that we are to look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, love that phrase, the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He was joyful to go to the cross. Mind blown. Mind blown. When Jesus tells you and I to pick up our cross, deny ourselves, walk away from our sin, and we go, No. I got better things to do. And Jesus for the joy that was set before him did that just so that you and I could actually have that moment where we rebel against him. Like that's that's love. That's love. It's it's unfathomable reckless love, right? It's crazy. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's Hebrews 12. That's the glorification, the victory that you and I look forward to. He is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And that's what we look forward to. is the presence of God in perfection. Victorious perfection. You and I may struggle to be convinced. may struggle to be convicted in our faith. But there will be a day... There will be a day, my friends, there will be a day when we attain full unity, full conviction of faith together in heaven. On that day when that happens, we'll stand together in perfect faith in the presence of our Heavenly Father. And we may argue, vacillate back and forth about little stupid issues of secondary doctrine that don't matter today, but on that day in heaven, on that day, the day that we all look forward to if you're in Christ. If if you're here and you're not looking forward to that day, you're probably not in Christ. And if you're only looking forward to that day as fire insurance so that you can see your loved ones again and not go to hell, you may not be in Christ because you're not looking forward to the presence of Jesus, your Savior. So I would hope that that would humble you warn you, and call you to Jesus who gave his life for you as a ransom with joy, with joy. Until that day, what you and I stand on if you are in Christ is the finished work of Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the pain and despised the shame, so that we could taste the same victory over our enemies. Like if that's you here, today, if that's you, then you and I can join together in speaking this out, right? We, we can say with conviction, with strong, firm faith. We can say, hey, Satan, where is your power? You got nothing, right? We can say, sin, where's your reward? I don't trust you or believe you. We can say, world, You got nothing. Death, where is your sting? Hell, where is your fury? You're beaten. So be convicted in your faith. One day, one day you will be completed in Christ. Trust and believe that Jesus is enough for you. Number two, we are attaining to the knowledge of the Son of God. We are attaining to the knowledge of the Son of God. Think about this word, knowledge. Knowledge, (coughs) knowledge biblically, um, is about confidence and steadfastness. (coughs) We oftentimes think it's about head knowledge. What do I know about something or someone? And there's a sense of that that's true. Um. Problem is, we like to hang our hat there because that's much easier work than actually knowing someone. Knowledge is about confidence and steadfastness. So, when I think of being perfectly confident in the knowledge of the Son of God, I think of something or someone that is immovable, right? Unwavering, unshakable, courageous, steadfast. Perfect knowledge of perfect. Perfect love casts out all fear. Perfect knowledge of perfect love casts out all fear. But if I'm honest with you, I'm not perfect yet. Surprise. <laughs> I'm growing. I'm growing in perfect knowledge. I've not arrived yet. Now I'm not in a rut, which is a grave with the ends kicked out. I'm not there. I am growing, but I haven't arrived at perfect perfection yet. There's there's still dark, sinful places. Hurtful, wounded places. Especially fearful places. Fearful places of doubt-filled knowledge contending for the truth deep within the hallways of my heart and my soul on a daily basis. I'm reminded that the Bible teaches me, the Bible teaches you, the Bible teaches us that we can know the truth and the truth will set us free. You can know him, not know about him. You can know him personally. You can have a vital relationship with Jesus. You can know this person. The truth has a face and a name. And his face is loving. His name is Jesus. And he hung on a cross for you and for me. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And through him, you and I can come into our Father's delighted presence. I've not yet attained perfection in my experiential knowledge of Christ's loving presence. It's hard for me to understand that Jesus loves me perfectly even in the midst of my darkest sin. Every day, every day, i got to wake up, remind myself that I am not in heaven yet. Every day I wake up, I beg God to reassure me of His unconditional love and His never-ending presence. And I would say that nearly every day, I struggle with not just feeling lonely. I struggle with feeling alone in a room full of people who neither care if I'm there or acknowledge my presence or communicate that I'm even wanted. Now, let me clarify. This is not a physical or spiritual reality. This is a feeling. I prefaced it that way on purpose. Because those feelings are fickle. But it's an emotional reality. It's definitely a spiritual warfare reality. Satan hates the work that God is doing in us. If you are here and you are a Christian, Satan absolutely detests... And hates the work that God is doing inside of you. He is the father of all lies. There's no truth in him. He is a roaring lion. Seeking to steal, kill, and destroy, and devour. The work of God. Satan hates the work that God is doing. Sin. Sin cries out to you and I, promises us momentary reward. You will be rewarded. Feel good. You'll like this. It'll definitely feel better than that, whatever that is. definitely feels better than picking up a cross. The world reminds me that I'm missing out on all of what it has to offer. if you think think that's gonna end before we go to heaven, you're deceived. If you're in Christ, then, then you and I have a father in heaven who sings songs of joy over us. His delight and his pleasure in us are without end. Psalm 41.11 this week, man, wrecked me, rocked me, held me steady, kept me from jumping off deep ends. Psalm 41.11, man, reminded me that by this truth, David says, (coughs) by this truth, I can trust that my Father delights in me. By what truth? We got to ask, by what truth, David? By this truth, I can trust that my Father delights in me. By what truth? That my enemies will not shout in victory over me. That my enemies will not shout in victory over me. And according to Revelation, there will be a day when Jesus returns on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth and lightning bolts coming out of his eyes. He's got a tattoo on his leg. I don't care how you want to argue it, but it says, King of kings and Lord of lords. And on that day, you know what's going to happen? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know what that means for our enemies on that day? You know what that means for Satan, sin, and the world, and the grave? Here's what that means. They'll be silenced for all eternity. Silenced. All eternity. This life is a breath. It's gone. In the face of eternity with my Savior. That's what I look forward to. That's the victory that I look forward to that enables me to walk in victory right now. Maybe not last night. Maybe not in a couple hours. It does right now. And it can then. And it could have then. Until I walk into heaven, I am striving to attain perfect experiential knowledge of Christ's love, which casts out all fear. We live in the already not yet. We live in the already complete, not yet completed. We are attaining to the perfect and complete knowledge of the Son of God. Number three. Number three, we are attaining to the measure of mature Manhood. Now, now maturity, <clears throat> maturity is about character, okay? Maturity is about character. And, and, and character is about measuring height, age, and fullness. Like, in the church, it feels uncomfortable to talk about measurements in regards to Christian character. There are ways that we can have that conversation that are intensely prideful and arrogant, for sure. And yet the Bible doesn't shy away from measuring Christian growth. And I, and I would go so far as to say that if we shy away from measuring Christian growth and character, then what we're saying by shying away from it is that we are just fine and dandy and okay with being immature rather than becoming mature. So I think we must measure spiritual height, spiritual age, and spiritual fullness if we're going to pursue authentic spiritual growth. I'll tell you what happens. I think, <clears throat> I think what happens is uh, when, when we shy away from that, I think that's where we take the U-turn towards head knowledge. When we start saying, man, if you can spout off all these great facts about the book of Revelation or about, the doctrine of justification. <laughs> I mean, tell me about your stack of books. That's fine. I want, I want to see it in your life. I don't care how much you know till you show me how much you love like Jesus did. So like this is why Paul says that we are called to equip and build one another up. I mean, it'd be ridiculous for Paul, for God to call us to equip and build each other up. If we couldn't measure if the work we were doing was actually going somewhere, we wouldn't build a house that way, right? You'd measure it. Count the cost. Set a firm foundation. Don't build with cheap materials. Build with good materials. Same with your character. Don't take shortcuts. Don't soften things. Do the work well. And this is why Paul says... Called to equip and build one another up. Look at verse 13. Until we all attain to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. To mature manhood to the measure, measurement, of the stature <coughs> of the fullness of Christ. So, so how do we measure stature then? That's the big question, right? Won the argument. I realize I win. I love winning fights. So you guys can tell I'm just having an argument with myself up here, really, right? Um, I'm being snarky again. So how, how, do, we, how do we measure how do we measure stature? How, how do we measure fullness? How do we measure Christian character? Let me just say this. As an illustration, I not in my notes. Small bunny trail, got time. Um, when it comes to fullness, if you go to the ocean, the ocean is full of water, right? It's a lot of water. Anybody here think they can drink that entire ocean? No, no. <coughs> if you were to grab a glass and fill it up with ocean water, you would say it's full of the ocean. True. Not to the same capacity that the ocean is full of the ocean. True. So there, there is a measure and there is a fullness that has to do, I think, with our spiritual age and maturity. It's attaining. takes time. And some of us, when we first begin to follow Jesus, or probably more like a little shot glass. Yeah, shot glass is the only thing I can think of, okay? Um, like, like one of those, I mean, they're, they're not shot glasses. Those little things we use for communion in some churches, they're like, they look like little shot glasses to, to those of us that come out of a rough background, just saying, trigger, like, can we get rid of those, please? Goblets, I don't know. Um, so, I mean, for some of us, when we start out following Jesus, it's kind of like that little glass. And for others of us, at different times, we might be more like a big goblet, like we're just standing in front of a mirror. Some of you, I mean, I have this really big mug in my cabinet. I think the question, I I think the prayer, I'm going to dive into this in a minute more, but I think the prayer from us has got to be, God, increase my capacity to know you. If you're not praying that prayer, you're going to stay in the same place of maturity that you're at right now. Start praying and asking God, increase my desire for you. Increase my love for you. Increase my thirst for you. Increase my hunger for you. And you know what? As that happens, your hunger, your thirst, and your desire for things that are contrary to Christ, begin to get less and less because you're feeding a different dog inside of you. Called the Holy Spirit, who happens to be the hound of heaven, and his job is to turn you into the image of Christ. That's maturity. The path of maturity. So how do we measure? Well, the Bible teaches us that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, right? Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. This is Luke 2.40. Um, And here's my thought. If the sinless Son of God has no problems being measured, what does that say for you and I? Sinful, broken people. We should have no problems being measured either. Paul exhorted Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.12, to let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. There are some measuring rods, right? Be an example. Speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. probably good to follow the same example as what uh, Paul did in his discipleship and mentoring of Timothy. The Bible also tells us um, in Colossians 1 uh, that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. That's our model. That's our example. He was full of the presence of God. Can you say the same about yourself? Yeah, I I get it. Not Jesus. Man, if, if Jesus... The presence of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. And you you have to ask the question, man, is is the presence of God pleased to dwell in me as I'm doing this or saying that or pursuing this or thinking about that? Paul, again, challenged Timothy in uh, 2 Timothy "To, to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Listen to this, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So like put all this together, wisdom, wisdom seems like an important measuring rod. Live your life foolishly? going to say, don't think you're that mature spiritually and probably should do some work on that, right? Because the opposite of wisdom would be foolishness. Anybody in here ever live foolishly? Good. Thankful. We've got honest people here. Okay. <laughs> But you probably shouldn't stay there if you know that's true of you. That's called a rut, a grave with the ends kicked out. Not a good place to be. I mean, number one, it stinks in a grave. It stinks bad. <laughs> number two, um, you become a stumbling block for other people, and they fall in the same stinking grave with you. And in fact, many of us, when we're in those graves, we actively pull people into those graves. You know why? Because sin is lonely. And we need people to walk in there with us and to hide out with us. Problem is, you're hiding in the wrong bunker. Hiding in the wrong bunker. Sin, desire. Get together, have a baby. The baby's name is Death. Not a good place to be. Don't hang out there. Jesus died to set you free from that. I think being an example. This is an important measuring rod too. The question is what kind of example are you? Are you an example of Christ? Would would my smallest child look at you and say, "I can follow your example." If you had a small child, would you want that small child to follow your example? Those are ways that I ask the question helps me helps me to walk rightly, helps hold me accountable. Speech, lifestyle, love, Faith, purity, all these things, good measuring rods. Fear, I think I saw fear in this as a negative measuring rod. If the evidence of the Spirit's power in a maturing person's life, I think is evidenced by love and self-control. Love and self-control. So the question is, coming from that passage, do you really love people? Do you really love them? and Are you really self-controlled? What are you full of? Because fullness seems to be part of the key here according to what Paul says, right? I've always said that when someone gets squeezed, you find out what they're full of. <laughs> right? I mean, you, you pick up a grape and you squeeze it, you, you find out what it's full of. When someone gets squeezed, find out what it's full of. Testing always reveals what our character is full of. When your desires are tested to the limits that's when you find out what you're full of and you're either full of Jesus or you're not. And and the assessment and the evaluation there is not meant to cause us to hang our heads in shame because I know a Savior who went to a cross despising the shame. It's meant to cause us to look up at the cross and what Christ did for us. Testing always reveals where our character is full of suffering. Always has a way of squeezing out a certain kind of juice. It's either bitter or it's sweet. And temptation, I believe, I know we could argue this and I'm not going to spend time here. Temptation, I believe, is another tool in the Lord's hands for squeezing us too. me, Ron? God doesn't tempt us, but Satan tempts us, sin tempts us, the world tempts us, but I know a God who's sovereign in control. Satan might be a big, roaring lion that you and I could be afraid of, but he is. A little kitty on a leash held by the hand of a sovereign God. Read the book of Job. So temptation, I think, is another tool in the Lord's hands for squeezing us. And the fruit of the Spirit is the key here, right? fruit of the Spirit from Galatians. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, those are great measuring rods for Christian maturity. And the question is like, what kind of fruit do you see in your life? Because I've personally witnessed some professing Christians who are like 20, 30, 40 more years into their walk with Jesus, they are far more immature than the person who's been walking with Jesus for six to 10 years. Also met some amazing saints who have walked with Jesus faithfully for over 30 years, who's lives I want to emulate today, who are models and examples for the way that I want to walk. <clears throat> the key, <clears throat> key, I think, with every maturing Christian that I've ever encountered is what I harp on quite a bit, a vital, life-giving, fruit-filled, fruitful relationship with Jesus, right? A vital Life-giving, fruit-filled, fruit-full, full-of-fruit relationship with Jesus. That's that's what I think the key is. Because people with a vital and life-giving, fruit-filled relationship with Jesus have a presence of faith and knowledge that isn't just merely head knowledge. It's something that comes up out of the heart that has been squeezed and tortured under suffering and hardship and testing and temptation. It's deepened. That faith. That knowledge, it's deepened. It's not like the seeds that fell on the path and got torched. It's not like the seeds that fell on the path and got carried away by some little fat little birds, right? It's an actual faith and knowledge that, when squeezed, has grown and has developed to maturity. This kind of Christian, maturing Christian, someone who is attaining to the maturity of manhood, produces fruit and keep them with repentance. This kind of Christian doesn't think too highly or too lowly of themselves, but instead, a maturing Christian exalts Christ in everything they do. And the question is, is this you? Are you attaining to a more perfect faith? Are you attaining to a more perfect knowledge? Are the faith and the knowledge that you profess to be growing in, are are they producing a more perfect maturing in you day by day? Or are you becoming more and more of a fool day by day? Because if you are, the warning is don't stay there. Don't stay there. What do you need to believe today? What have you been trusting in recently to satisfy you? What, what kind of knowledge of the Son of God have you been relying on? Head knowledge or experiential knowledge? Like, it, it might just be for some of you here today that when you leave here, you need to find a place and you need to fall on your face before a holy God who could have wiped you out of existence a long time ago, but he instead sent His Son to a cross for you. Like let the tension between His holy wrath is his never-ending love take you to a place where you, you fall on your face and you say, Jesus, I, I need you. Don't, don't leave there until you experience him and hear his voice. <coughs> what are you full of today? Are you attaining to the unity of the faith? Are you attaining to the knowledge of the Son of God? Are you attaining to mature manhood? Are you exalting Christ in everything you do? Because God's word to us today, you've heard it. You're now accountable for it. God's word to you and to me today is that if we've trusted in Christ, then we are not called to be a country club. Not called to be a social club. Not called to be a group of people who just throw parties with each other. Not called to be a political power. It's actually in weakness that God's power is made strong. We are called to be a maternity ward, a pediatric clinic, and an emergency rescue center. Called to equip and to build up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The question again is, is that you? Let's pray. Father, We thank you for your word. Ask God that you would take what we've just studied, what we've just learned, what I've just preached. We pray, Father, that you would use it. Remove that which was impure. Take that which is pure. Make it all pure. Drill it into our hearts and our minds and help us as Christians to encounter you pray God today that the preaching of your word that you would have awakened dead hearts. I know there's dead hearts in this room Father and I know that I can't wake them up. Only you can. So Father I beg you the power of your spirit please come into this room and awaken dead hearts to the reality of your love and your sacrifice and your holiness and the responsibility and the seriousness of what it means to grow in faith knowledge and maturity. Help us to look to you, Jesus, at the cross as your body was broken and your blood was shed on our behalf. And help us help us, to crumble in humility under what you did for us. Help us to draw near to you and receive the promise that you would draw near to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.